Edward Sree, and welcome to All Things Catholic, where real faith meets real life. Hallelujah! He is risen! It is Easter week as we celebrate this week as Christians, but you know, many people in our secular age are just going on minding their own business. This was just any other weekend for them. And if they've heard about the idea of Christians believing in the resurrected Christ, Many of them kind of just go, well, that that's fine if you Christians want to believe that, but come on, really? I mean, somebody was crucified and put in a tomb and he rose from the dead. You really believe that, you Christians? How can any serious thinker in the 21st century believe in the idea of resurrection? You know, that, 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 just, that just doesn't happen. When people die, they stay dead. They don't come up from the grave. This sounds like some fairy tale or some myth. Yeah, and that's what this is. This is just Christian legend, Christian myth. We can't trust the gospel accounts. Are you kidding me? I mean, those stories were written by just men who were deluded or they fabricated these stories. They're just trying to convince us in this resurrection idea, but we know it couldn't have happened that way. That's how many uh, people would be viewing the Christian belief in the resurrection of Jesus. I want to equip you, though. I want to walk through some very important points uh, that could help us have greater confidence, not only in the resurrection itself for our own lives, but confidence in sharing the resurrection with others. Because while our faith in Jesus' resurrection is a part of divine revelation, it is something we respond to in faith, there are many points uh, about the resurrection, where we're going to see how our faith is built on reason, as, as we always see. It goes beyond reason, but there's a reasonable foundation that supports what the scriptures tell us, that on the third day, Easter Sunday, Jesus rose from the dead. So that's what we're going to get into in this week's podcast. But before we go there, I want to take some questions. As you know, I always like to hear from you, and I'm so grateful for the many people who contacted me over the last week, either on social media or on my website, edwardsree.com, or if you just emailed me directly at info.edwardsree at gmail.com. Again, that's info.edwardsree at gmail.com. I love hearing from our from the listeners of this podcast. I'm hearing from people from all over the world, uh, and that's awesome. Uh, I want to hear like how the podcast is touching. If there's anything in this week's episode or last week's episode that that touched you, encouraged you, blessed you in some way, please share that. I I don't want to share that with the other listeners that they may be enriched as well. But I also love taking your questions, and that's what I'm going to start off here with today. Well, first we have a comment, though, from Betsy. Betsy just said this. I want to thank you, Dr. Shree, for helping to make my Lent and especially Holy Week so much more meaningful. I took the class No Greater Love at her parish. This is the the, the video program I've been talking about that we filmed in Jerusalem at the Sites of Christ's Passion, and it's a, it can be used as a Bible study. And she goes on to say, I took the class at, her, at, at my parish and enjoyed it, but really thought that that would be it, that the class itself would end and I would be done. But she said, the book has given me a whole way of thinking about the Passion, and I read it over and over during the readings at Mass, I can, I can expand on the written word in my own mind, knowing the background and having a deeper appreciation for the Old Testament. Well, thank you, Betsy, so much. I'm so glad. I've heard so many people talk about how much the, the video series has been helpful for them in their Lenten journey. Uh, but I'm, I'm very grateful to also hear for you, and I've heard from others. Uh, I think Betsy represents a, n- a number of others that contacted me last week, also about the book, and how helpful that was, especially during Holy Week, as we were hearing 
the, the these readings from Scripture of Christ's Passion. I know just having worked on this so much over the last eight months or so, wow, my, my Holy Week was was so enriched this year. Uh, just thankful for the opportunity to, to delve deeper into God's Word and Christ's Passion. So thank you, Betsy, for that feedback. Uh, a, a number of people have asked me uh, uh, throughout, oh, the last month or so, if uh, one of the people we brought to Jerusalem that were a part of this this filming project for No Greater Love, uh, uh, Tanya, so I took a couple with me on pilgrimage, Tanya and Carlton, uh, and, I, and they've never been to Israel, and they're coming along and seeing the places for the first time of Christ's passion. And some people were asking, hey, Dr. Shri, was Tanya pregnant? <laughs> because what was happening, they, 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 they just noticed something there. And sure enough, I, I, I wasn't able to say anything publicly for a while, but uh, I can tell you that Tanya indeed was pregnant. When she said yes to go on this, they weren't pregnant. And then right before they came, they, they found out they were expecting, and it was great to have them along. And in the first couple of days of filming, you couldn't tell. But as the week went on, all of a sudden she started to show a little bit. So that was funny that some people noticed in some episodes she seems to be showing. Well, I have some exciting news about Tanya. And if you could please pray for her and Carlton and their baby boy. They just had a baby boy, Maximilian Colby. And get this, he was born on Holy Thursday. Isn't that awesome? Holy Thursday. Think about this. This little baby that was journeying on pilgrimage in Jerusalem, walking in the footsteps of Christ's passion with with his mom in his mother's womb while we were doing the filming for the show. This little baby who journeyed step by step in his mother's womb through Christ's passion is born on Holy Thursday, the very start of Christ's passion. That's awesome. So I know many people are interested in that. You can look at my Facebook page uh, on this Easter Tuesday. I just posted a picture of little baby Maximilian Colby. He was born Holy Thursday morning at 10.05 a.m., 6 pounds, 11 ounces, and 19 and a half inches. So uh, please pray for Tanya and Carlton and their whole family and this newest addition, little baby Maximilian Colby. All right, here's a question that came in here about uh, the Sacrament of Confession. This comes from Mary. Mary says, I've been listening to your podcast for a few months and have really enjoyed it. I listen on my way to work and it is a quick way to dive into my faith. I have a question for your podcast. It's something I've been struggling with for some time. This is a personal question here. She says, I haven't been to confession in many years because it's difficult for me to understand why we have to confess our sins to a priest when Jesus can see the contrition of our hearts without a confessional booth. You probably get asked this question all the time, but I'd appreciate any clarity you'd be willing to provide. Well, I just want to say thank you for this question. Thank you for your honesty. Thank you for just really opening up and saying, you know, I, I got this question and I, 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 it keeps me from practicing this particular, uh, this ritual that going through the sacrament uh, more regularly. And I haven't been there in a long time. So I just want to, I just think that's great. If you've got a little roadblock in your faith like this, to just bring it out to the open, to go ask someone, whether it's me on this podcast or your local priest or one of your local catechists, uh, this is just wonderful. Um, why do we confess our sins to a priest? When Jesus can see the contrition in our hearts. Um, Wonderful point. I think we do it because Jesus knows we need to. He knows that we need to actually say it out loud and speak it to another person. You know, it's kind of the analogy often uses this in in my marriage. There's times where, you know, I I know I, I maybe have hurt my wife or I wasn't as thoughtful as I could be or 
Um, I just was maybe it was a little short, wasn't as kind as I could be in my words or actions. And, uh, and, and I know that I, in my heart, I'm really sorry. And then she might notice that I kind of feel a little badly about it. She might notice that I'm being extra kind now or helping out a little more, being more thoughtful all of a sudden. You know, so she might notice that and get, oh, he feels a little bad about what he said last night. You know, and that, then that's fine. And things like that happen in human relationship. But, but what really brings reconciliation between my wife and I, when there's just a little, whether it's a little thing or a big thing in our, in our marriage, it's when I actually just speak it. I just come right out and I say, hey, honey. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said it that way. Or, honey, I, I'm sorry, Beth, that I, I I didn't think about this and how this would affect you, or I wasn't thinking through things as well to help you. If I just speak it, first of all, it's helpful for me to not just have the contrition of my heart, even a contrition that she might notice from the outside, but it's helpful for me to just come right out and speak the truth, to say it out loud and to say it in front of another person. Uh, and, and it just makes it more real. It's more concre- concrete. Uh, it, it, it makes it uh, more personal so that I say I'm sorry and then I hear her response and I hear her say, I forgive you. Like Those little words in a marriage are so important to say I'm sorry and to hear I forgive you. And that's what we do in our intimate relationship with God. Yes, God knows all of our sins. And yes, he knows when he can see our heart starting to become contrite and we're sorrowful. But it's a whole other thing when we go and we actually say to Jesus, I am sorry. We say it out loud. And we say it not just in the privacy of our heart or the privacy of our own little bedroom when we're alone at night or in a little chapel. No, we actually say it out loud to a representative of Jesus, a representative of the church, the priest and the confessional. It just makes it so much more real, so much more contrite. Uh, there are many times when I've, I've said sorry to Jesus. I've been truly sorry. But man, when I actually have to say it to the priest, my level of sorrow is, is it, it can grow. It can be much more uh, of a deeper contrition because I'm speaking it. And then I hear the priest representing Jesus say, I absolve you of all your sins. So I hear the real priest behind the priest, that's Jesus Christ. But I'm hearing that voice and, and, I, and I hear the prayer that, that's recited. I hear my sins are forgiven. Uh, that's how many human relationships works. Jesus knows how we work. That's why he gave us the great sacrament of confession. Uh, so that's just one little thought there for you. Um, but if you want a little more information, check out my book, uh, Love Unveiled, The Catholic Faith Explained. Love Unveiled, The Catholic Faith Explained. I have a whole chapter there about the sacrament confession, addressing this and many other questions about that. So check that out uh, as, a, as a resource for you. All right, another question here. This person uh, is... Uh, Monica, who said, Dr. Shree, we just finished your video series, No Greater Love. We'll be taking the book with us on Pilgrimage of the Holy Land this next week. Uh, thank you for getting it done this year. I found your study regarding the difference between Peter's repentance and Judas's regret brilliant. So uh, this person was noting how in the study we, I talked about what's one of the big differences between Peter and Judas. Yeah, Judas does the more horrendous sin. He betrays Jesus. Peter denies him. That's really bad, but it's not as bad as actually betraying. That's one difference. But another big difference is this, is that it, it just tells us that that Judas, some translations say that Judas repented of his sin, but he it's, it's actually um, a word that means uh, to have remorse. 
Some trans some people may translate it to have regret. And there's a big difference between repenting of something, where you turn your life around, you tell the person you're sorry, and you, you, you turn your life around, your all your actions, and just simply regretting something. Like I can just say, you know, oh I you know, I'm sorry, honey, I really am sorry, heartfelt sorrow. I could just kind of go, Oh, I regret I said that because now she's gonna be mad at me and I'm gonna be in trouble tonight. <laughs> you know, the regret is just not it's not the full form of repentance. That would that's what Judas expresses. Um, but Monica goes on to say that this reminds her of another passage in Genesis 6, 6, where it says that God regrets the creation of man. This is after he sees all the sin on earth and he's going to send a flood. And it says God regrets the creation of man. I'm curious what you have to say about it and what you know about the, the, the translation of these words. Now, here's the issue here. When it says that God regrets, I don't want you to think, don't think of this as, God's just changing. God did something and now, oh, I regret that I created humanity. That's not what this means. Uh, this is a human exp- a human way of describing a, a change in God's relationship with us, a change in the way God is going to be dealing with us. God, it's not as if God is having second thoughts about creating the world. It's just that we, because the human family became so sinful, God's approach toward man, the way he's going to deal with humanity is going to change. We're going to see his love, which is eternal. It never changes, but his love is going to be expressed in different ways. I love my children always. There's sometimes when I love them and it's, I just want to give them a big hug. There's other times where I need to give tough love and I have to discipline them and say, if you don't come now, there's going to be consequences for this. I love them in both ways, but my fatherly love is expressed in different ways depending on their changing situation. My love shouldn't change, but their situation does. And that's it. My love is expressed differently. If it's a discipline moment, or maybe it's just a nice warm cuddly moment with them. <laughs> that's how our heavenly father's dealing with us. Uh, our heavenly father loves humanity. He, he brought us into existence out of love. He holds us into existence moment by moment out of love. And so when you read in Genesis 6, 6, where it says that he regrets the creation of man. It's not like he's saying, oh, I wish I didn't do that. It's just simply a human way that the human ancient biblical writer is is noting a change in the way God's fatherly love is being manifested. Now there's going to be some tough love. There's going to be some serious disciplining going on. And that's what happens with Noah and the ark and the flood. So that's what we have there. All right. So, so many, so many other topics we could get into, but I want to, I want to circle back on the main thing I want to talk about today, and that is the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, so, uh, let's talk about that. You know, some people claim that someone stole the body, that the whole resurrection is just a hoax. It's not history. This is just some hoax. The apostles stole the body and just made up this story that... Jesus rose from the dead. So let's just think about that. The apostles are going around proclaiming Jesus rose from the dead. And if you wanted to debunk them, the easiest thing would have been to just go to the tomb and find the body and say, hey, here's the body. Look, there's Jesus. He's still dead, right? But that's not what anybody did. The Romans didn't do that. None of the the Jewish leaders did it. The Pharisees, the, the, the chief priests. None of them went to the tomb to try to show a body. That would be the quickest thing to dispel this crazy idea that Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, and none of them did that. Why? Because the tomb was empty. The question now is, why? 
Why is the tomb empty? And and the theory is that, well, maybe someone stole the body. Well, who would have stolen the body? We know the Jewish leaders wouldn't have stolen the body. They have no interest in in trying to make Jesus seem like uh, he rose from the dead. They wanted to kill him and squash his whole movement. They don't want to give any any new life to this movement. So the, the Jewish leaders would never have stolen the body. The Romans would be another possible candidate. They had Roman soldiers guarding there. Is it possible maybe one of the Roman soldiers went in and stole the body? But again, they'd have no interest in this. They're just trying to maintain order and peace. The last thing they want to do is, again, stir things up, cause new tensions there in Judea. So they're not going to be interested in stealing the body. And so the biggest candidate is the apostles. Many people would say, oh, maybe the apostles stole the body. So let's just let's just think about that. Is it possible that the apostles stole the body? I mean, I guess anything's possible. But is it likely? I mean, when you think about these apostles, these men, and what they were known for, they were known for going around and preaching this really radical view of love and service and care for the poor and the needy. Uh, they had such a high moral standard. Uh, and the apostles and their successors, they were known for standing out, for their amazing love, their amazing care for others, uh, a very high ethical standard. Is it possible that that whole ethical system of Christianity in the early church was built on a lie, on just some big hoax to, to make it look like Jesus rose from the dead? I mean, I guess it's possible, but I would just, just look at that little data point and go, it doesn't seem likely. I mean, it's in the realm of possibility. I guess those things could happen, but it doesn't seem likely. I would go a next step, though, and say, is it, is it likely that all these men would die for a lie? I mean, let's think about this. 11 out of the 12 apostles were martyred. All of them suffered intense persecution, but 11 out of the 12 were martyred. And uh, each of them were martyred individually on their own in different parts of the world at different times. So this isn't like a cult group, you know, that you hear about these cults and they may all like commit suicide at the same time with their pressure and group pressure, peer pressure, group think, you know, that's not what's going on here. These are individual men all on their own, at different times, different parts of the of, of the Roman Empire, different parts of the world, and people are coming and saying, we're going to kill you. All you have to do is deny Jesus. Give up this belief in Jesus and his resurrection, and your life could be spared. And not one of them ever cracks under pressure. They all go to their deaths proclaiming Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Again, dying for a lie one or two people but all of them all of them really is it is it is it likely that they all died for some lie all on their own where they could have saved their own lives by just denying the resurrection doesn't seem likely there uh that they that they would die for a lie they died because what they believed in they knew was true they died for their lord jesus christ but let's just ask another question let's just talk about what was going on there uh, between Good Friday and Easter Sunday? We know that the Roman soldiers were placed to guard the tomb. There would have been a, a Roman seal on that tomb. There would have been a large disc-shaped stone covering the entrance of that tomb, uh, a stone that would typically take a number of people to, to move. And is it likely that Peter and James and John, the other apostles, were going to make a raid on the tomb and 
take on those Roman soldiers and, uh, and, and move the stone and risk their own lives. Is it likely that they were going to do that? Let's just think about these men. Let's talk about these 12 apostles. <laughs> what state of mind are they in? What, what kind of emotional state are they in on Good Friday, Holy Saturday, Easter Sunday? I mean, these men were cowards, Right, they uh, all but one, you know, just run away from Jesus. Peter, you know, Judas, we know, betrays him, but Peter denies Jesus three times. Uh, they all run away and abandon him in the Garden of Gethsemane. There's only one of them that gets reconnected with Jesus and follows him all the way to Calvary, and that's going to be St. John. Everybody else, they're all just cowards on Good Friday. And when you read about them on Easter Sunday, what are they doing? Remember, they're hiding. They're, many of them are hiding in the in this room, and they're scared when Jesus appears. They think it's a ghost at first. Right? They're, they're so scared that they're going to be arrested next, that they might be crucified by the Romans. So they are so scared for their lives. They abandon Jesus on Good Friday. Is it likely that these cowards somehow all of a sudden muster up all this courage to take on the Roman soldiers, to move that big stone, to take Jesus's bodies, risking their own lives for this? Again, it, it, I guess that's possible, but it just does, doesn't seem likely. So just from a pure historical standpoint, I think there are a number of things. I don't want to make this sound like, well, this proves the resurrection. Again, we have faith in the resurrection, but our faith is built on reason, and it's very reasonable to, to when you look at the whole story of what happened between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, uh, it seems like what the New Testament accounts are offering makes the most sense. Uh, now, the last thing I'll say is this. The, the accounts that we read about Jesus' resurrection, the Easter stories in the Gospels, uh, those are not the kind of stories one would have invented. Uh, in other words, if you, were, if you were one of the apostles and you're discouraged because your Jesus died and you've been with him for three years and you're just really down and you wanted to kind of just make up a story, well, let's just say he rose from the dead. Uh, it's not the kind of story they would have invented. Because, first of all, they're not going to score points with the Gentiles. The, the Gentiles around them were not expecting anything like this, right? Most of them didn't think resurrection was possible. Many of them, like in the Platonic Greek tradition, wouldn't even think resurrection was desirable. You, you want your soul to be separated from your body, liberated from the constraints of the body so it can uh, experience freedom. You don't want to go back to the, a body, a resurrected body. That just seems crazy. Think about St. Paul. When he goes around preaching the resurrection to the Gentiles, many of them are shocked like he does in Athens. He goes right to the heart of Greek culture in Athens. He's got their attention. They're all you know, really listening to him. And then as soon as he talks about the resurrection of Jesus, they all start mocking him. So you're not going to score points with the Gentiles by proclaiming a resurrected Jesus. But you're also probably not going to score a lot of points with the Jews, at least the way the gospel accounts tell the story. You see, the Jews weren't expecting this kind of resurrection. They believed in general resurrection. They believed that uh, all of the righteous, all of the faithful uh, Israelites would be raised uh, in the great eschatological age, in the final age. But the idea of one man rising on his own and then many others following later on, like that just that just wasn't in their 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 frame of mind to be thinking of that. Uh, also, the idea of resurrection, while it's there in the Old Testament, there's there's definitely some passages that point in this direction. They tend to be about this general resurrection, you know, not not an individual Messiah rising from the dead. But even the the few passages where resurrection appears, 
it's not central to the to the mindset of, of of the Jewish hopes and expectations. It was a part of it was a symbolic way of expressing the hope for the end of the exile. That just as Israel had suffered uh, under exile under the curse because of their sinfulness, uh, that that one day. They'll, they'll experience new life. And so resurrection was a nice metaphor to express this new life. And they did believe in resurrection, again, in a general sense, but it was often attached to wider hopes for the nation of Israel. And it wasn't a central belief uh, that was right there front and center. Whereas when you get to the New Testament era, man, St. Paul, he's just constantly talking about Jesus Christ risen from the dead. It is, it's the climax of all the gospel accounts, and it's the center of Paul's preaching. Not, again, very different than, than what the Jews were expecting. Uh, there's continuity there, but there's a lot of new stuff. So this isn't the kind of story I think Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John would have invented, the idea of just one man rising on his own from the dead. Uh, one, a couple other last things here. is It's interesting that these stories have no prophecy fulfillment in them. You know, all throughout the gospel accounts, you see many times where the gospel writer will say, and Jesus said this to fulfill this prophecy, or Jesus rode on the donkey to fulfill this prophecy from Zechariah, or Jesus was raised in Nazareth to fulfill this prophecy of Isaiah. So many times where the gospel writers are pointing to prophecy coming to fulfillment to show Jesus is the, the climax of all of the Old Testament hopes and expectations. But when you get to the resurrection accounts, you don't have those kinds of moments. You don't see Matthew using one of his great lines, this was done to fulfill what the prophet said. You don't see all these prophecies in the background. When you get to the resurrection accounts, they just seem like ordinary stories. It's just like each gospel writer feels free to just tell the story. This is what happened. He rose from the dead. It, it doesn't look like, again, if you were if you were trying to just fabricate a story and you wanted to make it look like Jesus rose from the dead, you'd go back in the Old Testament, find all these prophecies and try to, little allusions that might hint at this, and then try to bake the story uh, and make it look like Jesus is fulfilling these prophecies in the Old Testament. But you don't see that at all. You just see each gospel writer just saying, this is what happened. It almost feels like just eyewitness testimony. You don't even get a sense that they're collaborating. You know, like take, for example, you know, who arrives at the tomb? Was it Mary Magdalene all by herself? Was it a group of women? You know, each gospel writer seems, you know, I think you can see the stories are coherent, but they're not like they all lined up and said, okay, let's all get our facts straight. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we're all going to say the same thing. You don't get that sense. Like what time of day uh, do they arrive at the tomb? Is it light outside? Is it dark outside? Is it dawn? You know, each gospel writer has like a little different take on the time. It sounds kind of like eyewitness testimony, you know, like when you have eyewitnesses from the Titanic, they're all saying this happened, this happened, this happened. They're all pointing to the fact that the ship really sank, <laughs> you know, but they're each telling it from their own vantage point. It sounds very authentic, like eyewitness testimony. The last thing I'll say is this. Sadly, in the first century Jewish world, women were not considered credible witnesses. I know that's very sad. It's very different than, than our modern mentality. But I just want to know that historical fact. And, and if that's the case, if you were a, a gospel writer and you're just trying to invent the story of the resurrection, you wouldn't have made Mary Magdalene and the other women, the, the first people to get to the tomb, to see the angel, Mary Magdalene to be the first one to, to encounter Jesus in his resurrection. It, again, if, if, if your motive is, I just got to make up a story and I want people to believe this, this legend, this myth I'm writing, you wouldn't have used women as the first witnesses. Uh, again, it's sad that that's the case, 
but but historically, women weren't considered credible witnesses, uh, and so uh, it doesn't sound like these gospel writers were just inventing something. Uh, they're just telling the facts. This is what happens. Uh, Jesus really did rise from the dead. The women really got to the tomb first. He really did appear to Mary Magdalene. I think just how beautiful that is, given that cultural setting, that Jesus just breaks through that view of women and appears first to Mary Magdalene, not just any ordinary woman, but a woman we know that had had a, had a had a had a difficult sinful past in her life, and Jesus reveals Himself to her, and she becomes the the kind of the first person to go and tell others about Him. Uh, beautiful, beautiful accounts here. So much more we could get into. Again, you can check out my book, Love Unveiled: The Catholic Faith Explained. I deal with this topic of resurrection, confession, many other things we've been talking about in this week's podcast. Thanks so much for listening, my friends. You are in my prayers, reach out to me at info.edwardsree at gmail.com. Find me on my website, edwardsree.com, or you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. God bless you.